0: My name's Dan, I'm a trainee here at Charlotte Chapel. Uh, I get the privilege of preaching God's word, so let's pray to the Lord. Our Father, you tell us that if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. So as I preach your word, please help me. Give me the right words to say, please and give us all hearts which are soft to hear your words. We ask that your word would be our guide, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, and that your glory would be our supreme concern. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in, oh that is tiny, there you go. Uh, In November last year, a man called Andrew Tate, you might know him, uh, posted a tweet. Now, before I read the tweet to you, I should say that I definitely don't recommend Andrew Tate to you. Nonetheless, here is his tweet. As a Muslim, I have enormous respect for Christians. And I state this from a position of kindness. The universe has always ensured that the weak were conquered. Every weak nation, every weak race, every weak faith. Stop complaining about Islam and look in the mirror. If you do not stick up for yourselves if you do not hold the proponents of your faith accountable for degrading it through tolerance, if you allow yourselves to be constantly mocked, you will be crushed and replaced by Islam. I genuinely encourage Christians to stick up for themselves. Islam is not your enemy, weakness is. What a tweet. Now, Andrew Tate rejects Christianity, and in his kindness, he gives us Christians some advice. What's his advice? Well, our Christ is too weak. Christians are too weak. We allow ourselves to be constantly mocked. You should really stop that. And as a result, Andrew thinks that Christianity is going to be crushed by Islam. I should say, he doesn't represent most Muslims. He's a bit of an outlier. Now, Andrew's attitude here towards Christ and towards Christians is actually very similar to that of the religious leaders in the passage we've just read in Luke. So if you've got your Bibles, do open up to Luke chapter 20, we're gonna need that. The religious leaders see Jesus coming, claiming authority, and yet being very weak, being rejected in fact, and they despise that. And what we see as we read through Luke is that this king who claims to have all authority He comes and he's rejected by everyone. In weakness, he is crushed and crucified. But here's what we're going to learn from our passage today. The rejection of this weak Messiah leads to the destruction of his enemies and the firm foundation of his church. Now, here's what's happened recently in Luke. Jesus has boldly entered into Jerusalem on a little donkey... But he's been announced as God's Messiah king. He has then condemned the earthly Jerusalem to destruction because they did not submit to him. And then, thirdly, he cleared the temple, declaring that it's not needed anymore because there's a new temple coming. He quotes from Isaiah 56. And then have a look down at chapter 19, verse 47 and 48. We see that the religious leaders are determined to kill Jesus, and they would, but all the people love him. So before we really dig into our passage, I just want us to see some structure. So you see up there is a table. On the left is all of the events of the day before our passage. So the welcome of the Messiah, Jesus promising the destruction of Jerusalem, and the clearing of the temple. And what we're going to see is each of these events is parallel to each section of chapter 20 that we're going to look at today. So verses 1 to 8 is parallel to the welcome, etc. You can see it for yourself. So let's, let's dig into God's word. Verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, well, let's just pause there. What is this good news that he's proclaiming? We're not told here, but we're told in chapter 4. What is the good news? Well, the good news is the gospel, that Jesus himself... Is the Messiah, the Spirit anointed one, who has come with authority to forgive sins? He has come only for the weak and the sinner, and all who repent are welcomed back with God. It's very good news. But look at verse 2. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders all make up the Sanhedrin, that's the ultimate religious authority, and they hate what Jesus has been doing and saying. So they demand he explains himself. They kind of, you can picture it, you see there, they, they come up to him. It's kind of more like they rush up to him. They're rushing up to him and saying, explain yourself. How dare you do these things? How dare you clear the temple? How dare you declare yourself Messiah? Who do you think you are, Jesus? Explain yourself. Now, they're not looking for an actual explanation. Luke has just told us that they're looking for a way to kill Jesus, they want to trap Jesus by making him say something maybe blasphemous or something uh, kind of rebellious against Caesar. And if they can get him to do that, then finally they can kill him. They can bring him to Pilate and say, he needs to die. But Jesus turns the tables, doesn't he? Look at verse 3. He sees through them. So before he answers, he asks them a question about authority. Want to talk about authority, Jesus says? Who authorized John the Baptist and his preaching about the Messiah and his baptism for the forgiveness of sins? Was it God? Or was it just himself? Just sort of human origin. In other words, is John the Baptist a true prophet or is he some charlatan, a fake? And so look at verse five. They discussed it among themselves. They start to kind of whisper. Well, look, if, if we say that John was sent from God, then we have to say that what he said was true, and what he said was that Jesus is the Messiah, so we definitely can't say that. Yeah, but at the same time, if we said that uh, that John was a fake, all the people who love John are going to kill us. What do we do? So what do they do? Well, out of fear of the people, in verse 7, they plead ignorance. They are so determined to kill Jesus that they will reject him at any cost. They don't even really care what the truth is. And so Jesus sees that. He sees that they have already rejected him as Messiah. So he refuses to answer their questions. Instead, what does he do? He turns away from this powerful authority, the Sanhedrin, towards, in verse 9, the people. So this brings on to our second point, the destruction of of the rebels, from verse nine. Now before we get into the what of the parable, because it's a bit of a confusing parable, I wanna just start by clarifying the why, the why of the parable. Why is Jesus telling this parable at this moment? When in light of the religious leaders rejecting the authority of the Messiah, Jesus is now explaining what the consequence of that is going to be. What is God going to do with those who reject his son? It's an important question for us all to ask. Now, just to help us understand the parable um, and it, what each character represents, I'm just going to get us all to turn back in our Bibles to 2 Chronicles, chapter 36. I'll give you a bit of time to get there. 2 Chronicles, chapter 36. It's on page 471. This is, a, this is an overview. This is a history of the people of Israel. Page 471, chapter 36, starting from verse 14. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. That's the history of Israel. I think that's important for us to have in our minds. What I've done here to help us, you can turn back to Luke now, to help us understand the meaning of the parable of each character, I've made a little table saying what each one represents. So here, let's let's just go through the parable verse by verse. I'll leave that up there so we can see it. Verse 9. Now a man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. So this is the Lord God creating Israel and appointing priests and kings to care for it. Look at verse 10. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. This is just what we've read in 2 Chronicles, isn't it? God sends the prophets, God sends his servant to speak a corrective word to the leaders but what is the terrible thing that the tenants do? They beat the servants and send them away. And it happens three times, getting worse and worse each time. The leaders of Israel rejected the prophets again and again and again. And now the point is that if, if we've read Second Chronicles, if we know the history of Israel, we're expecting something massive, aren't we? Let's just go back. Do you see at the end what happens? They mocked God's messengers, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. So what are we expecting to happen in this parable? We're expecting the owner to come in absolute wrath and destroy these tenants, get new ones in. But look at verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they'll respect him. So instead of immediately destroying the tenants, he gives them one last chance, and it's not any old chance. This is far beyond what you would expect from any owner, any boss, any god to do. Not only does he send all of these prophets, and he's patient when they're beaten and they're mistreated, but when it gets as bad as it could get, when they've gotten as violent as they could, he sends in the son whom he loves. Perhaps they'll respect him. Have a look at verse 14. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. Does that ring any bells for you? They talked the matter over. You could rephrase it. They discussed it among themselves. Have a look at verse 5. What is the response of the Sanhedrin when Jesus approaches them, when when they approach Jesus, they discuss it among themselves. Jesus is flagging up for us in a flashing light, the tenants are the religious rulers. And what do they say in verse 14? This is the heir, they said, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So this is Jesus predicting his own death again. He says he knows, he knows that the religious authorities are going to crucify him. In fact, he knows it with some precision. They don't just kill him in the parable in verse 15. First they throw him out of the vineyard, and then they kill him. We're going to see in a couple of chapters time, it's exactly what they do to kill Jesus. They take him out of Jerusalem, and then they crucify him on the Roman hill. This is the height of the Rebellion realized. Now, can you imagine the shock that's going through the crowd at this moment? Now, They're amazed that the owner would send his son after they've mistreated these servants. They're expecting him to, like, totally destroy these servants. They're amazed that he sent his son. But now silence goes through the crowds. They've killed him. What have they done? Have you ever experienced this when you're watching a film, and and it's, it's a really good film, And something goes wrong, but it's okay, the hero's got an answer, and the hero comes along really strong, and he dies. We don't see a lot of films like that, but sometimes we do. It's done, it's over. But really importantly, this is not the end of the parable, is it? Let's keep reading. When, uh, what then, Jesus asks the crowd, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Verse 16. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyards to others. Jesus is not being controversial here. He asks the question because it's obvious. What's, the, what's he going to do? He's going to come and bring justice quickly. They killed his son. And this is the main point of the parable. Of course there has to be justice. The traitorous tenants must pay for what they've done. So the question that we asked at the beginning was, what is God going to do with those who respect his son? Well, we've got the answer. God will destroy those who rebel against him. These are from Jesus's lips. God will destroy those who rebel against him. And there's one really clear application here, I think. What is it that motivated the The servant, sorry, what what is it that motivated the tenants to kill the servants? Why did they do it? Can you spot it in the parable? They wanted to be independent of him. They didn't want him coming and telling them what to do. They didn't want to give him any of the fruit of the vineyard. (coughs) They didn't want him demanding things of them. They didn't want to obey his commands. They didn't want to be close to him. If you can picture them in your mind's eye, they were perfectly happy for as long as they could not see the owner. As long as the owner was far away and they could enjoy his vineyard, they didn't mind. They wanted to be independent of him. And they look great until God comes close, right? Until the owner, through his son, comes close. And at that moment, you see the reality of their sin. In my experience, that's how humans often act. I don't know about you. But the moment you're in a conversation with someone, lovely time, and they start asking us slightly deeper questions, you get into a deeper conversation. They love to talk about God. But the moment you mention Jesus' name, that's a bit too close. Let's just step back. The moment that God's Son gets close to us, that's when we really rebel. That's when we feel the visceral independence reaction. I've called it the independence instinct. And it's that instinct that led to all the sin in this parable, because independence from God is the essence and root of sin. Saying to God, no, I don't want to be near you. I'm very happy to take your stuff. I don't want you close to me. Now, my, my first name is Dan, as you know, my last name is is Bossof, it's a South African surname, I, I obviously I don't sound South African, I'm English, but my dad is South African, for most of my childhood that half of my identity was pretty dormant, except for every four years, I wonder if you know why. Every four years the Rugby World Cup comes on, now England's a great team, but so is South Africa, so I kind of win both, this year was great, um, but every four years we'd suddenly remember we were South African. <laughs> um, my dad would quickly print out South Africa flags and stick them all over the house. Uh, He would make sure that we wore our Springbok jerseys when we watched the matches. And at some point, every four years, we would watch the Clint Eastwood film Invictus. I wonder if you've seen this film. If you haven't seen it, it's a great film. It's based in uh, post-apartheid South Africa in the 90s uh, about Nelson Mandela trying to use the Springbok national rugby team to kind of strike a blow against racism in the country. Uh, Now, it's not a perfect retelling of history, I'll tell you that, but it's a great film. But there's always one part of the film that kind of grates with me. Every time I watch it, I just can't quite sit comfortably as a Christian during this one scene. That's probably not what you expect. It's when Nelson Mandela, voiced by the wonderful Morgan Freeman, reads a poem entitled Invictus. I've just got the first and the last verse of that poem up there. I'll read it to you. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Can you see why that makes me uncomfortable? It's the essence of sin, isn't it? This is the independence instinct that we've seen in the tenants. It's the same sinful attitudes which led to the crucifixion of the Son of God. But can I be totally honest with you? That's not the whole reason that I find it uncomfortable. This is why. Whenever I hear that poem or I watch that scene in the film, there's a little voice in me that says, yeah, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul, not God. I'm in charge. I have a hunch that most of us feel that, at least at some point. Why is it that we love that idea so much? Why do you want to be seen as this unconquerable soul with ourselves as the only master of our fates? Sin. Baked into us. It shouldn't be, but it is. Now this instinct to rebel, even against good authorities, even against God, to act like we're the master of our fates—it it is the essence of sin. And what is Jesus teaching in this parable? He's teaching through this parable that this independence instinct is rebellion against God's cosmic authority. He's telling us that sin is sedition. That iniquity is insurrection. And that transgression is treason. Jesus is telling us that our sin, our lying, our lust, our lack of love. These are not merely personal peccadillos. They are rebellion against the holy gods. So we didn't hammer Christ to the cross but we provided the nails and that's the meaning of the parable this brings us on to a third and final point the foundation of the new temple have a look down at verse 17 or verse, the end of verse 16 rather. when the people heard this they said God forbid or another translation of that could be may it never be They are responding to the action of the tenants in the parable, those who beat the servants that God sent and then killed his beloved son. And they're saying, may it never be. Have a look at verse 19. It's not that they've misunderstood the parable. It's fairly clear to everyone. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. It's clear to everyone what this parable is all about. So what are they saying, may it never be to They're crying out, may it never be that Israel's leaders would kill God's Messiah. We don't have a weak Messiah, a rejected Messiah like that. What does Jesus do in verse 17? He looks, I love this, he looks directly at them, in their eyes, to those who could never imagine that a weak and rejected Messiah is part of God's plan. And he asks them this. Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus is here quoting from Psalm 118, first of all, and then from Isaiah 8. And what's he saying? In short, he's saying this. He's saying that the rejected Messiah is the foundation of the new temple. We're going to unpack that in a second. Now, do you remember, each of these three sections that we've looked at have had their parallels with uh, the previous day. Let's see if I can find that table for us. There we go. So this last section is paralleled with the clearing of the old temple. So here we're going to find out what that old, that, this new temple that he's promised is really all about. But before we think about the foundation, we need to think about What it means, this new temple. Where does the idea come from? What is it? Well, it's a promise from the Old Testament. So, first, let's go let's rewind all the way back to Genesis chapter one, two, and three. So, even in the beginning in Eden, God created this garden for what reason? Because he wanted to dwell with his people, he wanted to be with them, he wanted this happy friendship with humankind. And this was the place where humanity could enjoy the all-satisfying God forever. It was the happiest place on earth. Until it wasn't. Sin entered and the holy God, who cannot allow sin to go unpunished, cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. And it was all ruined. But then God made a second temple, the, the, the old temple. This is the place where God will again dwell with his people. I don't know if you remember in the mornings, I hope you do, that we've been going through Exodus for a long time, and we did through every little bit of the tabernacle which led to the temple. What was the point? Because God loves to dwell with his people. But now there needs to be sacrifices because there's sin, and sin needs to be atoned for. But once those sacrifices were done, humans were welcome to come closer to God. The temple was like God's house, the place that he dwelt, and his people were welcomed home. It was the happiest place on earth, until it wasn't. The Israelites broke the old covenant so seriously that the temple was torn down. The Israelites were carried off into exile, but God made promises to the faithful remnant while they were in exile. What did he promise? Loads of things his his promise was that there was going to be a new covenant coming in that will never be broken not like the old one there'd be no more exile and with a new covenant comes a new temple so at the end of i don't know if you've ever read through ezekiel by the way if you're doing the bible reading plan you'll get to it eventually it's a great wonderful book of the bible but sometimes a bit confusing because you get all the way through the book and you think wow it's a heavy book then you get to the last eight or nine chapters And it's this really detailed description of a temple that seemingly is never built. You read the rest of the Bible and it just never turns up again. Well, this is the promise of God. He's going to build a new temple. We see it at the end of Ezekiel, at the end of Isaiah, and at the end of Zechariah. Now, in poetic language, in Ezekiel 47, God tells us that this new temple is going to be so amazing, it's going to have a a stream of living water flowing out of it, and when this water, this stream of fresh water, hits the sea, rather than the water becoming salty, the sea becomes fresh. In Isaiah 56, God tells us that the temple will not merely be for Jews anymore, not exclusively. In fact, it will only be for those who trust in God. Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. What matters is that they trust in the Lord's. So this new temple, this place, this new Eden where God will finally dwell with his people forever and there'll be no more sin to ruin it. This is the perfect setup. It will be the happiest place on earth forever. So that is the new testament, oh uh, sorry, the new temple in the old testament. So let's come back to Luke chapter 20 verse 17. What is Jesus telling us? He's telling us that this new temple is about to be built. The cornerstone is being laid. This is it. So what is the foundation? What is the cornerstone of this temple? What does it say? The stone the builders rejected. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to work out what Jesus is talking about is himself. It's the son who was rejected, the Messiah who was rejected. This tells us that the new temple is not gonna be a physical temple because the Son of God is not gonna be physically at the bottom of a physical new temple, right? This is talking about something bigger, something greater. What it means is that once Christ has been crucified and resurrected, then the building of the new temple has begun. The foundation has been laid and now it's being added to. So the new temple built on the sacrifice of the Messiah is the church of the living gods. Let's just have a look at Ephesians chapter two for a moment. The Apostle Paul is writing this to, to Christians in Ephesus. He says, You are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Church is the new temple built on the foundation of the rejected Messiah. So that one day, once every brick has been laid of this temple, once all of the elect have come in, put their faith in the Lord Jesus, then God will bring in the new creation and we, the temple of God, will enjoy him forever. The church itself is the glorious plan of God under the Lord Jesus. And the foundation of the church is the rejected Messiah, the crucified Christ. But we have a couple more verses to go. Look at verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. What's he saying? If you try to get into this temple If you try to do anything with god which is outside of the cornerstone you're going to find that this weak jesus that andrew tate so pities is terrifyingly strong anyone who has not built their lives on christ crucified will be crushed by him just like the tenants in the parable so what does it all hinge on it's all about our response to jesus it doesn't matter quite how religious you are, how nice you are. It's about how you respond to Jesus. If we refuse his authority as king and if we just follow our independence instincts, we will be crushed by him. But if we submit to him, if we trust him and in his death for us, we're going to enjoy being part of this new temple forever. So, That is the message of this passage. The rejection of the Messiah leads to the destruction of rebels and the foundation of the church. It's just a couple of words of application and then we'll pray. Whenever I preach, I'm aware that, especially here, there are many, many Christians and a number of people who would not yet call themselves Christians, have not yet seen the Lord Jesus for who he really is if that's you, God is saying this to you today just like he said in the parable this is my son whom I love he was crucified for you come to him build your life on Jesus that is the only thing that lasts there is no other throne that lasts, no other song that endures only the Lord Jesus now if if you'd love to just find out a little bit more about this Jesus, if you're still quite early on in, in hearing about him, do check out these yellow cards. We've got a little course, Hope Explored, going on. I'm sure you're welcome to join. Uh, do go find one of those in the corner over there. I think there's a, it's a few applications for those of us who are already part of this temple. Here's the first one. Know that you belong in this church because of Jesus. We need to recognize that you and I were headed to verse 18. That was our destination. We deserved the full weight of Christ the cornerstone, the Holy One, coming down on us with justice. As Christians, we know that's what we deserved. We deserved hell. But praise God, he loved us to such an extent that that God would even give his own son Whom he loves to redeem us. So we belong to this church. We belong to the church, the new temple. All because of Jesus. Finally, the temple's not done. Start building. The new temple is still under construction. There are gaps in the walls where people-shaped stones belong. They're not yet there. We need to go and find them. That's our job as Christians. There are more of God's chosen ones who need to come in and accept the gospel, and there's no way that they're going to do that unless we go out and proclaim it boldly. Brothers and sisters, don't we want to see so many people become Christians this year? Let's set the bar really low. Let's say, as Charlotte Chapel, we just... We want to get 25 people into the kingdom by the end of the year. That's a low bar. But that is 25 living stones added to the temple, built on the foundation of the crucified and resurrected Messiah. And that does not happen if we all stay together as stones huddled in a corner on a pile. We need to go out proclaiming the crucified Christ, even when it looks silly and weak to those around us because to God's children it is not silly and weak. To those that he has chosen, his spirit will let them see it. But We don't do any of this alone. We know that the chief architect of the temple is Jesus Christ, and he helps us now by his spirit. Let's just pray to him now. Our Father, We thank you that even though we spurned and scorned and mocked your son and your words, that because you loved us, you sent the Lord Jesus to be mocked and hated, to be rejected, to be the Messiah who is crushed and who is resurrected. Father, we ask for your help, please. Help us not to move away from the foundation of the crucified Christ. Thank you that he is our king forever, that we are a temple, the new temple, built by you, and we will endure for eternity. Father, help us to praise you now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Do stand as we sing our final song.